Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we still may struggle in our intimate relationships? Yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational practices and support from trusted allies. My husband and I have a wonderful marriage, but we're not necessarily the best relationship teachers. In episode 315, I brought on the founders of the Relationship School, Jason and Ellen. They live and breathe all things relational, boundaries, conflict, owning your needs, attachment styles, and so much more. If you want to learn how to work through conflict better and communicate better, Jason is offering 50% off his Indestructible Partnerships course. Thousands of people have changed their relationships for the better with this course. Go to School slash Laura and use the coupon code Laura to get 50% off this life-changing course. Now back to the podcast. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today, I have a very old friend of mine from over 25 years ago with me today, James Walsh. We were at Duke together And have you ever had that experience where you have seen someone as a person and then many years later seen them and see the growth of that individual? I mean, Jim was amazing when I knew him at Duke, but when we reconnected, I was just blown away with all that he's doing. He teaches at CU Denver, and then he moved to the political science department in 2013. He specializes in labor, working class, and immigration history and politics, as well as U.S. social movements, community organizing, and arts-based education. He founded the Romero Theater Troupe in 2005, an all-volunteer, over 600 people, organic theater troupe that specializes in telling and preserving stories about struggles for human rights and social justice for diverse audiences. He uses theater and community-based learning in his classes, and he's a hugely popular professor at Denver. I hope you enjoy our talk. He is so inspirational and it really gives you ideas of how you can be more involved in your community, in activism, in your life. Please enjoy my talk with my old friend, Jim. Welcome, Jim. This is Friday with Friends and I have an old actual friend, not a new friend, a friend from, we were just discussing it possibly 25 years ago from when we were at Duke University together. Welcome, Jim. It's so good to have you on here today. Great to be here. So for everybody listening, Jim um, and I met at Duke his senior year, and I was, I think, a little freshman. (laughs) And Jim, you were a wrestler at Duke. I met you when you were waiting tables. And then I visited you after 
you graduated and you were living in San Francisco. So here you are now, professor at the University of Colorado, you're at Denver. Is that University of Colorado at Denver? Yes, University of Colorado at Denver. And I'm just really fascinated about this journey. We were talking about a little bit beforehand. How did you get to the place where you are now? Can you just back up? Because when I, again, when I saw you, you were at Duke, a college kid. Everybody changes, grows, evolves, but you have really expanded in a in a way that is has been beautiful for me to witness. So take us along the path of how you got from Duke to professor and also activist. Thanks, Laura. Um, I, I'm not sure I even know the answer to that question myself, except that. When I, I I was saying or sharing earlier, when I was at Duke, I was um, somewhat lost and out of place, being in a place of such privilege, and coming from a, a family really of steel workers and and uh, a big Irish Catholic family, and so it was a very difficult experience for me in that regard, feeling like a fish out of water. So when I left Duke, I I really didn't have the same kind of career trajectory that most of my friends at Duke had. They all had internships set up in a, a very straight, direct, clear career path. And at, le- at least it seemed that way, but the way that people talked about their next steps and their plans. And, and I didn't really have any. So, And the reason is I didn't know who I was yet at that time. So the, what I did is I headed west, moved to, to San Francisco for a year, which was wonderful. Opened my mind. Um, and then moved to Boulder, Colorado in the summer of 1990 to study poetry at the only Buddhist university in North America, the Naropa Institute, now Naropa University. Every summer, the old beatniks from the 50s generation gather there, Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, um, Gary Snyder, and Ann Waldman and others. And these are folks I had read, but I'd never met. And so to be, be able to study with them was really amazing. And I immersed myself in the art of poetry and started to meditate and slowly but surely began to grow in a new direction. So the, the love of poetry led to a love of history. I learned that you can't appreciate poetry unless you know history because of all the historical references that are embedded in the poetry. So I, I decided to jump into graduate school for history at CU and loved it. At Duke, I was not a great student. I was not into my classes or, or studies, but I loved school now and devoured the readings, wanted more, and decided after my master's just to keep going. Why stop? If I love it this much, why stop? So someone said, well, you should go for a PhD. I, I really didn't even know what that meant, what, what a PhD was. No one in my extended family has a graduate degree. So this was new terrain. So I applied for a few programs, decided to go to CU Boulder and became a labor historian. So a historian of the folks whose stories aren't often told in those thick, glossy textbooks that we have in high school. Indentured servants, um, agricultural workers, coal miners, domestic workers. I became an historian of, of their lives. And that felt like I was exploring an unknown planet. And it felt right. This, this is who I am. This is, I'm from a family of steel workers and hardworking people. And so this, this became meaningful to me. At the same time, I was learning who I am by exploring my own roots, my genealogy with my uncle 
in Pennsylvania, who's the opposite of me politically. We're, we're polar opposites. This is the kind of guy that would have been at the Capitol on January 6th. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we fell in love in a different way, in a way of deep um, reverence for our roots and who we are. And we started, this was before you could do genealogy on the internet. So we would go to dusty libraries, microfilm, church basement records, just digging and digging and digging. And the more we found, the more we discovered who we were, the, these desperate exiles from Ireland during the famine. Almost every branch of the family arrived in North America, having been driven out of Ireland by hunger and, and desperation. They worked on railroads, in coal mines, the worst, most dangerous jobs imaginable. Um, two of my great-grandparents were killed by trains and train accidents because they were always close to the rails. The first Walsh family in North America lived in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and in a house, they maintained a section of the track. That's what he did. He was a he maintained the section, and their house was literally 20 feet from the tracks. You can imagine the trains rolling by at night. So I found that all the tragedies in the family, mental health issues, substance addiction, I mean, you name it. And, th and these were all a result of the trauma that people had left behind. There's a lot of study today on intergenerational trauma um, in the African-American community over slavery, in the Jewish community over genocide and in the Irish community around the famine. And so I began to, for this world that helped us understand ourselves, the more we learned, the more we realized why we are the way we are, who we are, our place in the world. And it emboldened me in a new way. I started to, at the time, I was tired of hearing a lot of racist rhetoric in the community directed mostly toward the Latinx community here in Colorado, the immigrant community. So I became involved in the immigrant rights movement in the early part of this century. Just started showing up at rallies and demonstrations and started, um, I made immigration an academic specialty so I could teach immigration history as a way of countering xenophobia and became um, great friends with a lot of people in the immigrant rights community, many of whom are themselves immigrants, became my teachers and my mentors and and continue to be to this day. So, so that was really my one of my first acts of activism was showing up at those rallies and demonstrations and learning about the struggles that people face when they cross a border and face a lifetime without documents and without opportunities that others enjoy. Oh my gosh, I'm just really oh so touched by that. I mean, what it sounds like you've done is taken a gift that you have, which is storytelling and poetry and woven it with some personal uncovering of your own history and recognizing that stories need to be told. Because if we just talk about a person as a, as a migrant or an immigrant, and, but we don't know why, you know, why they've crossed the border, why they left Ireland, you know, you're just, you're not, getting under the layers. And that's those are the layers of humanity where we can all find our connection to compassion. So I think that what you're what you're 
doing and have done in that say is you were following your heart. You were listening to that like heart speak, that inner voice that says that this is part of life is connection, but it's also knowing that you and me, people that have had more privilege of any kind, which is often just being white, is enough of a privilege. But in addition to that, having an education, having papers, a homeland, those are privileges that we all take for granted, I think. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you bring this into some of your classes? I was looking at the list of the classes that you teach, poverty and politics, immigration po- politics, power and empowerment, immigration and ethnicity in American history. I mean, these are, these are, these are heavy topics and boy, are they relevant, especially in this last year when so many of these stories just came to the forefront and could no longer be hidden. Yeah, well, I'm very active in the local Irish community here, the Irish American community, um, sort of a blend between the two. And I'm constantly trying to nudge and encourage people, push people to to see themselves and the, as um, the role of the Irish community as an ally. That if you have Irish roots, then it makes so much sense that you would be sensitive to people going through immigrant experience today, experiencing xenophobia, experiencing discrimination, experiencing dehumanization, because that's what happened in the 19th century to people from Ireland. And so if that's your roots, you you ought to pay attention to that, study that, educate yourself about that, and hopefully it will will take you to a to higher place. I'm, I'm always disheartened at especially during the Trump years, seeing so many Irish names in the the Homeland Security and Border Patrol leadership positions, um, knowing that those folks were active in some policies such as separating families and the immigrant detention center boom, that are are private prisons, and that these people have Irish roots, have roots where, where, where their own ancestors were treated similarly. So we do solidarity nights. We, we've done a couple here in Denver where I bring the um, Irish community together with Latinx community, music from both traditions, and we have theater, and we sing and sing in three languages, um, English, Spanish, and Gaelic. And it's and but we've had wall-to-wall, standing room only, 300 people at these events. Well, we wanted to have food from both traditions, and then we realized that Irish food is pretty bland and it couldn't compete with homemade tamales. So, <laughs> so we, we chuck the Irish food. But but we so we do events like that and these these are engineered and designed to um, inspire the kinds of cross cultural solidarity that are is needed today. And, and and that's the thing too is that so many people, so many of my students, they um you know, they, they, their only identity is I'm white. And as you say, they, they understand that there's privilege with that. They often will make comments like, I don't have any culture. You know, I'm just, I'm just white. So one of the things I really try to do is to help young people explore their own roots and understand that every human being has culture. And that um, finding one's own culture is, is a way of expressing solidarity with communities of color. It's almost like peeling the layers of the onion back and de-whitening <laughs> oneself mm-hmm. by getting ethnic, getting in touch with one's ethnic roots is important. 
even if it's been 10 or 12 generations, there's still in our DNA languages that we, we can't speak anymore and traditions and customs that live. So, so that's the work that I do. And it's been, it's been very rewarding. It's challenging as well. It's, it's not easy work, but. I was going to say that, you know, you're, you're meeting kids at a point where they have been mostly influenced by their parents. And so we, I don't know what the actual statistic is, but by the time you get to college, I think 90% of your beliefs are of your parents. Can you tell us any instances where you came across some really hardened personalities in the classroom who were just essentially parroting what their parents had taught them, whether it was about you know, Black Lives Matter or there's no such thing as white privilege. And what was the approach that worked that you were successful with, with those? Because I imagine, I'm sure you've had a few. Yeah, that's a great question, Laura. This is a big deal right now. Um, it was more of a big deal over the last four years um, than maybe today. Where um, and I, I, I recall an incident right right now where the week after the 2016 election, we were having a discussion outside, just a small class, a small seminar, and a student. And this is, this is not a student I would characterize as some you know right wing extremist at all. He was sort of a moderate, politically moderate young man. But he, um, something had sort of switched and changed in that moment. And he, he sort of started to speak belligerently toward students of color. He's very aggressive. And you know, I, I just heard him out. And, and then he, he, conf- he confronted me very aggressively with his voice raised. He was standing at this moment. And uh, with, with violence on campuses, people are, all, people are always... Um, uh, you know, with the shootings and whatnot, a little bit on edge. So I just let him have his say, and then he picked up his bag and stormed away. And I said to the other students at that moment, I said, when he comes back, let's welcome him. And I somehow knew he was going to be back. And I, I, I apologized to the students too, because they, they weren't deserving of the tone he was using to any of us. But sure enough, he came back and sat down and the first thing he did was apologize to us. And I invited him to have a cup of coffee. And we we spent an hour just, well, I was learning about his background. And um, by the end of that coffee, we were really on common ground there. And I think that's the challenge that, that um, I think progressive faculty might tend to want to dismiss and, and not engage with conservative students. For, for whatever reason, it makes them uncomfortable and the things that they say in class make everyone uncomfortable. But it's our, it's, we're responsible for any, anyone who's in a classroom, whether it's a high school or middle school, higher education, has to meet students where they are. If you're going to influence a student, you have to meet them where they are. And then from there, you can go, you can walk. But if you're not willing to meet them where they are, you're not going to have any influence on them. And, and in that moment, I, I, I wanted to have an influence on this young man, and I felt like I did. We're still in touch, hmm. so but those those moments aren't aren't frequent. They aren't often, but but I always reach out and try to engage directly in a one on one way when I have a student who might be coming from a very conservative perspective who just isn't connecting with the other students or with me. Typically, the tone of the conversations in my classes is very progressive and. So say a conservative student might feel alienated. I know when I was an undergraduate, if I had sat in my 
my classes now, I would not have been comfortable. So that's a, that's a challenge. And it's, it's not an easy time to be an educator. I'll tell you that. Oh, I, I can believe it. I can believe it because you're right. You have to have this like middle ground, not middle, it's not middle ground as in, you know, conservative progressive, but middle ground as in you almost that kind of switch, like neutral that you're hearing someone's perspective, even though it's um, obviously, you know, hurtful to others. But knowing again, in this, especially in this population, that some of it is just they don't, you don't know what you don't know. You know, you don't, if your parents and everyone you've grown up with have thought a certain way, now that's not, that doesn't give you allowance to just stay on that path of ignorance or alienation. But it sounds like in that moment, you know, like with a lot of people, anger is some, I always think somewhere deep within us, we know we're not right. We know it's not the, the path of, of justice and humanity. And I think that's what the anger comes from more than anything. It's defensive, of course, but I think we, I, I notice when we all get angry about anything, it's usually there's some truth to it, you know, that, that's like, that's bothering us. And I, I think that as educators, yeah, I want to applaud you. I think this past year probably has been, you know, taken five, has been worth five years of work. Um, not only having to adapt to COVID standards, but just also there's been heightened tension with the election here in the U.S., heightened tension of you know racial injustices really becoming so visual we can no longer deny you know what has been there for the last hundreds of years. How has that impacted the, the racial dynamic on campus and with the crossover with what you do in terms of like empowerment and power? Yeah, it's it's been huge, Laura. It's been earth an earthquake, and in, 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 in a positive way, I, w- I, w- I would add to that. Um, I went to some of the Black Lives Rat- Matters rallies in Denver when last summer when George Floyd was murdered and the whole thing blew up, and um, there were thousands of people. I looked around me and realized that everyone I was looking at was under thirty, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, it, and it struck me that. This is a generational revolution. It really is. Gen Z is, you know, I don't want to put it on them, but boy, they they are growing up, um, learning about things at a much earlier age. Yeah. I mean, the entire generation of young people have have been radicalized. And I use that term in the most positive sense of it, not, not as a pejorative, but been radicalized in a beautiful way. And previous to that, I was often the most progressive voice in the room. And now it's not even close. The students are leading the way and students are, are educating me, you know, and, and it's because that, that their consciousness has really grown in so many directions because of they've been in the streets and they've witnessed and watched. And they're saying to, to my generation, that might be your status quo, but it's not going to be our status quo. Mm. So we're, wit- we're witness to something that's rare and that's, beautiful and for some is scary and we're witness to that and and i never thought i'd witness it you know remember remember studying the 60s in school and thinking wow how did that all happen how did that go down but but in 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 higher ed it's you know administrations are part of the problem and and uh there's such an emphasis today on systemic racism institutional racism well higher ed's higher hugely responsible yes yeah, I mean, can you talk start- a little bit? Yeah, can you talk about that? Because you mentioned like 
These are the stories that are not taught in history. And I think that is higher ed, middle, I mean, lower education, all of it is, why do you think some, so much of that is whitewashed? Well, the, the bedrock of how someone, of what, of what someone's values are and their identity is, the bedrock of that is how they view their history and how they view their society and culture and nation. So if you want to change someone's values, if you want to change a society, then you should start with how they view their own history. And so that, that's why history is so political is it's, um, I forget who said it, history is not about the dead, it's about the living. Mm. And, it, and it is. So, so if we, you know, Howard's in with the People's History of the United States made a huge stride in that, in that direction. And it continues today, you know, with, I think one of the great things about Black Lives Matters is it has led to the, you know, lifting of the veil Stories like the Tulsa race riot in 1921. You're from North Carolina. I think you might know about what happened in Wilmington in, in the early part of the 20th century. I think it was 1904, 1900. A similar event happened there. And these events happened everywhere. And, and in Denver here, we, I'm part of a committee that we put a, a more historical marker in downtown Denver to commemorate a victim of a, of a racial lynching. It was a 14-year-old young man accused of raping and killing a young white girl in a, in, a, in a rural town an hour and a half east of Denver. And he was taken on a train to that town and 300 people burned him alive in a field. And it's never been, that story's never been told anywhere. It's been mentioned in a couple of books, but, but now there's a marker downtown. People can't ignore it. Tourists walk by it. And so that's one of the things Black Lives Matter has done is it's given oxygen to uncovering the horrors of, of our history that have been ignored or brushed over. And the reason higher ed matters is that, as, we, as I said earlier, you know, higher ed's always been this bastion of privilege. And there was just a study done in CU Boulder that surveyed the socioeconomic backgrounds of tenured faculty. And no surprise, discovered that the vast majority of tenured faculty come from a household where there was already a PhD and a household of, that was economically privileged. And there are very few faculty who come from working class backgrounds. And so, so what the critique now of higher education is, is, is really a critique of diversity, but I think it's also a critique of class and privilege that these disparate voices that have been kept out of these institutions for so long, whether they, those voices are communities of color or whether those voices are low-income communities, these voices are now demanding access. And administrations are scrambling and tripping over themselves to figure out how to navigate this, and higher ed will be better for it. You know, even in my own department, we're facing um, a lot of waves and changes and challenges, and it's 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 beautiful to watch. For some of my colleagues, it's scary, but but I, I, I see so much beauty in it. Yeah, it's like shaking up the snow globe, you know, and it's when it's happening, it can feel a little tumultuous. But when everything else settles, hopefully that settling will be with more fairness, voices that are not often um, highlighted and accentuated. And that's important. Like we don't need to hear the same thing over and over again, especially when there's so many other stories to tell. Now, in terms of history, I know you mentioned this 
commemoration, but I also saw that you were part of a group that you're in is involved in requesting to take down the, a Columbus statue. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Because, you know, I think we have all these people who get very offended, you know, taking down Confederate soldiers. Why is it important to take down a statue when there has not been the fullest portrayal of that person, but they've only been portrayed in this um, light of <laughs> the pioneer of our country? Yeah, so... So years ago, I met a woman named Rita Martinez in Pueblo, Colorado. That's about 100 miles south of Denver. And she's been fighting for almost three decades. To, there's a huge Columbus statue in Pueblo because Pueblo has a large Italian-American community um, because there were coal mines in the area and many immigrants came in the early 20th century. So back then, they saw that statue as a, a cultural icon, a source of pride. And then Rita began to organize people every every Columbus Day in October. They would gather near the statue where the Italian community was trying to have a ceremony with a wreath, a wreath-laying ceremony. There'd be Rita with other activists chanting and drumming. The police had to form a, a barrier between the two so that they were, there wasn't violence. So I started bringing students down there so they could witness and be some of them, they were free to participate or just to stand back and watch. It was really up to them. And it had a profound impact on them. They usually wanted to be involved and found Rita was very inspiring as a leader. When Black Lives Matters happened, she made the protests weekly instead of yearly. So they started meeting every Sunday at the statue. I, so I was down there for doing research and I, and I, I realized it was Sunday. So I, I decided to stop by and say hi to Rita. She had become a mentor to me, really. She doesn't even have a degree. So I don't mean she was an academic mentor to me. I mean, she was a mentor about life. And even she had, she's taught me more than many people I can think of, almost anyone, about activism. And she just had a beautiful way of leading Everyone trusted her, young people and older people. So that day, that particular day, she decided to bring everyone together and announce that they were going to suspend the protest because of COVID had gotten really bad in the area. This was last December. And they were going to start again after the holidays when the COVID died down a little bit. And so she announced that and everyone was disappointed, but everyone went home and and uh, two weeks later, I got a call that she had died of COVID. So, you know, it was very sad. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm close with her children. But, but anyway, that's just an example of how I was educated by moving to this region and learning about how people who have indigenous roots, mestizo people, um, see that history very differently than I was raised to see that history. And that's not just Columbus. This is really reassessing everyone we put on a pedestal, um, the heroicization of people in history, the great white man history that we were all taught, and uh, opening doors to reassessing that and reevaluating that and changing that. And some people say you can't censor history. And I mean, no one's trying to um, take Confederates out of history. No one's trying to take Columbus out of history. They're simply trying, because when a society puts a statue somewhere, they're making a statement that that person is to be revered and honored. And so some people say, well, it's a waste of time when you're just taking a statue down. But it's not. It has great symbolic meaning. 
in in Denver during Black Lives Matters, the Columbus statue went down. The one in Denver, Kit Carson statue came down. It got to a point where the city started taking these statues down even before the activists tried themselves. Preemptorily, the city decided we're gonna we're gonna head this off and just take it down. And so Kit Carson was taken down. He was a frontiersman. But to the Navajo people, he was a mass murderer. He ordered soldiers to fire cannons into canyon walls where the Navajo were hiding from his soldiers. So again, um, for communities of color, these, these figures are very different than they are for those who are raised to see them as heroes. Well, I'm really sorry about your friend. That is sad that she's one of so many that have been lost this year from COVID. But it sounds like she has a legacy within your words and your work. Oh, yeah. She's, and she was only in her mid-60s. She was, <laughs> she was young. So one more thing I want to ask you about is how you are not only bringing storytelling, well, it is a storytelling, but how you formed this theater. Because again, it's not, you know, knowing you from before, it's so, it's so fun to see this side of you that I didn't know about. I know about your poetry, but how did you decide to help form this theater? And what is kind of the mission and goal of the theater? Yeah. So here's a Duke story for you, Laura. When I was at Duke, I I always had this sense that I would enjoy acting. So one day I went to the Bryant Center. I found out where the thespian group was practicing. So I went to the Bryant Center. I found the, the space that they were practicing. I could hear them in there reciting their lines. You know. and, I, and I reached out and grabbed the doorknob and I, I couldn't get up the courage to open it. So I felt like, you know, people would look at me and who's this wrestler guy wanting to be, you know, wanting to come come act, you know, I was, I was sort of pigeonholed, you know, at least in my own mind, that wasn't, that was how my mind was working at that time. So years later, when I started teaching, I just could not teach in the traditional way. Remember your history classes or you're, you're forced to memorize dates and names, take tests. It's just horrible way of of teaching and learning history. And I I couldn't do it. I refused to do it. So in the large auditorium class where there would be 150 students, I didn't give final exams. I threw out those glossy textbooks and replaced them with literature and memoir and poetry. And and, um, and the the last change I made was um, instead of having my students write a a final research paper or take a, a final exam, they were put in groups and asked to create theatrical skits. And I didn't know what I was doing. I have no theater background whatsoever, but it was beautiful what they came up with and it and the discussions that they triggered and the students who sat quietly on the back of the room often came alive. And it was just a great experience. I did this with a colleague for, for six years and I've used theater in my classrooms ever since. I still do it. And, um, I open my every class I teach. I, I open as dressed as a 19th century Irish miner. I, I will launch into this monologue. We're on strike, and I need their help, and blah blah blah. And this is before I've even introduced myself, and and it's just a way to open of starting. So I, I had got this idea. Well, maybe I can start a community theater. You know that that does the same thing that that tells these stories that we're talking about today, like the Tulsa story. That we can create a, a community theater that 
that uses the stage as a tool to educate the public in a new way. And so I started calling former students who had acted in my classes and we, we cobbled together a little group and we were invited to give a skit about this life of Oscar Romero. He was a Salvadoran bishop who was murdered in 1980 for speaking on behalf of the poor in, in El, uh, El Salvador. And he, he's, a, he's, sort of, he's sort of a Martin Luther King figure of Central America. The more we learned about him, the more we admired his life. And we decided to name our troop after him. So we're called the Romero Troop. Mm. And this is our 17th year. Wow. 600 people have come through the troop. Oh my gosh, I have the chills. I mean, this is just extraordinary. And I think... What I really, I mean, we could continue talking on and on, but what I really want people to get from here is that we all have so much to offer. If you listen to your heart and listen to your curiosity, and I think the purpose of why we're on this planet, which is to be of service to others, you know, we have to kind of get our own shit together, but that doesn't mean that we, and then often we feel better about ourselves when we're of service to others. If you could leave us with maybe three or four kind of words of wisdom, say you were speaking to seniors that are graduating from college, because I think those kind of words always resonate with everybody because we're always at a point of growth if we are willing to grow. What would you say are kind of four points in terms of activism, in terms of searching for meaning? Do what scares you. I love it. Do what your inner voice tells you to do that none of the external voices are telling you to do. That's it. That's really good. I like that. This is such a pleasure. I'm so proud to call you a friend and to reconnect and to see what you have done in your life and specifically what you're doing for young people and for all the voices that have not yet been heard in the past and in the present. So thank you so much for joining me today. Laura, it's been joyful to reconnect with you and thank you for for inviting me on to your podcast. And where could people, I know you don't really have much like social media stuff or anything, but where could people learn more about some of the work that you're involved in? Well, people can just reach out to me at james.walsh at ucdenver.edu or look me up in, in any way. I'm, I'm available. And Romero Theater, is there like any website for that? There is. We're just launching a new one. So in a couple of weeks, there'll be a new one up that you can learn more about. We're going to be doing some exciting labor history on stage this summer. So we're, we're coming back after the pandemic. That's amazing. <laughs> well, we'll have all this in the show notes. Thank you so much. Keep, keep doing all the wonderful work you're doing. Thank you so much, Laura. And for all of you listening, as always, I'm pulling for you. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.